0: It's epic! (laughs) This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Chokic, and this week, a very special episode. It's the music, the artists, and the impact of the 1960s.
1: Oh, Christopher, and I know how much you love the 1960s. (laughs) And you know, it is funny. I was trying to come up with, like, one sound, one sound effect, you know, maybe the sound of the fans... Um, after Ed Sullivan introduces the Beatles. Just something that would exemplify the entire decade in one sound. And I think I've got Hmm. it. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Ladies and gentlemen, the 1960s.
0: Oh, doesn't that (laughs) sound amazing? You know what? That is absolutely perfect. Nice encapsulation there, buddy.
1: Now, of course, there's some people who are going to be upset we didn't play the rest of the song. That's the Beatles, 1964 and Hard Day's Night. And there's so much. First of all, in that chord, that chord is so kind of mysterious.
0: I still can't play it. <laughs> <laughs> the 60s. Do You know, Tom, just those two words, could launch what could be a very long examination of the lasting cultural impact of a generation. Luckily, we don't do that sort of thing. We play the <laughs> hits, right? <laughs> That's right? But it must be noted that the 60s, perhaps unlike any other single decade in pop music, continues to dominate the imaginations of music lovers in a powerful way. Now, Tom and I fall on either side of that great divide, so please stay tuned for disagreements.
1: Oh, I guarantee there will be disagreement. However... I really don't disagree about your feeling about the 60s. And, you know, my favorite music comes from the 70s. But I don't think there's any doubt that the 60s was the greatest decade for music because of everything that kind of exploded in all different directions and that there were so many great styles of music that, you know, most of it was spawned from the moment that the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. And sometimes when you look at the charts, it's hard to believe how many songs, how many great songs, how many groundbreaking songs were released in just the space of like six months, let alone a decade.
0: Well, for me, as a child of the 60s, it's about the overall influence of pop culture in my life, fashion, music, the beginnings of a social conscience. It was a time that seemed to declare itself free of history in a revolutionary way, Now, the post-war 50s seemed like about 100 years ago when we emerged from the theatre having seen A Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, we're going to bypass the lads and their one-time rivals, the Stones, in this show because we've featured so many amazing clips from those bands in previous episodes.
1: Yeah, you can find tons of Beatles content, including one we did to coincide with the release of the Peter Jackson film, Get Back. We also have Christopher's interviews with Paul McCartney and George Harrison separately, which is a very good thing, (laughs) considering what George (laughs) had to say about Paul. Uh, We also have Christopher in conversation with Bill Wyman of the Stones, my conversation with Mick Jagger, uh, and a 1993 chat with Keith Richards, which, which is excellent. They're all excellent. So we really wanted to make room for many of the other artists of the 60s, and that's what we're going to do this week.
0: We'll focus on some of the forgotten names, some timeless songs and their origins, some formations, some breakups, and everything in between, all in bite-sized clips that linger only briefly on stars like Gene Pitney, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Chubby Checker, Melanie procol Harum, and many, many more.
1: And we've got some superstars of that era, including the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas, Simon and Garfunkel, Aretha Franklin, and Crosby, Stills and Nash. As always, these interview clips are sometimes the artists looking back at their career, you know, a number of years later.
2: But mm-hmm. sometimes
1: the clips are from the very moment in the 60s that they hit the charts and their lives changed. And those are as interesting as anything by the way if you're listening to the radio version of this episode first of all thank you and second of all check out the podcast feed more clips more memories more 60s just open up your podcast app and find famous last words
0: okay let's get started with the 60s
1: From 1963, The Beach Boys and Surfing USA.
0: Tom, I love your interview or encounter, whatever you want to call it, with Mike Love of The Beach Boys. (laughs) I would be very interested to hear your take on the exchange, though, because to me... It seems like he begins to answer your question, a great question, by the way, about the musical evolution of the band. But then he kind of veers off into his, well, I'll call them shopworn talking points.
1: (laughs) Well, I hear you. But, you know, I was really thrilled to be talking to a beach boy. And even though he could get a little bit cranky and even though I'm less impressed by Mike Love now than I ever have been, At the time, he gave me what I wanted. A little bit about the genius of his cousin Brian Wilson Mm -hmm. and the creation of the song Good Vibrations. Have a listen to this. First of all, I want to ask you about the Beach Boys in the early days where you began as a pop band, just a great pop band, but you changed, you evolved into a band that was uh, renowned for their studio innovation. Now, how did that come about?
3: Basically, that's the result of my cousin Brian being like a duck to water when it came to of the studio and music. He was uh, one of the very first to uh, do symphonic uh, instruments. Use symphonic in- instruments in in recording. On our Pet Sounds album, for instance, in 1965 and six, as he was recording that. And also using a theremin, which is a weird instrument that he's used since the 30s in in mainly scary movies, in our song, Good Vibrations. And so he he did some very very innovative things. But basically, his his strongest point of all, I think, was uh, arrangements and harmonies, particularly the vocal harmonies. It's always characterized the Beach Boys. So... uh, when we started out though there was no precedent for rock groups there were no rock groups really that that evolved with with the beach boys and the, the beatles and the rolling stones then came a whole slew of groups after that one of the unusual things i think or, or uncanny things about the beach boys hard to figure out is that the number one records we've had in places as far away as south africa and australia and sweden and in right in the midst of the british invasion when the beatles were the absolute white-hot in 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 the USA uh, The Beach Boys were voted the number one group in England number two being the Beatles and number three being the stones and a Music industry paper called the new musical Express. They did a poll every year and we we came out number one I don't think you say you you hold your own against any kind of wave that big but but it was we were we continued to be popular even in in uh, not only in the US, but uh, abroad as well so It was more of like a competition thing that spurred Brian on, I think, to even greater uh, attempts to do great music, particularly the Pet Sounds album. And that, in turn, made Paul McCartney, it challenged him to to do even more in production, and he came out uh, with the Sgt. Pepper's album. So there was a really good competitive rivalry going on there for a, a, a couple of years. Can you tell me a little bit more about the story behind the uh, song Good Vibrations? Well, actually, Brian Wilson did four, five, six different versions and sections of the song. A section is put together from various sections and various uh, efforts in the studio. At one time, the original track of Good Vibrations, the first one I heard, sounded like it might have been the basic track for a James Brown and the famous Flames. It was very R&B, but then he finally settled on uh, on the format that that became the number one single in '66 that we had, and I I actually wrote the lyrics on the way to the studio in my car. It was kind of wild. It was like only about 15 minutes away from the studio, and I kept and I was dictated the lyrics to my then wife, my now darling ex bride <laughs> of love these 30 years. This was uh, yeah on the way to the studio. It was pretty wild. Right, driving down the freeway, I'm going right down the down. I love the colorful clothes she wears, and and so on. So it was kind of neat. It was so it was both structured in that Brian really worked on the track and got it to the point where he liked it, and it was spontaneous because the lyrics were just comprised in just a few minutes.
4: I, I love the colorful clothes she wears. And the way the sunlight plays upon her head.
1: From 1966, the Beach Boys and the classic Good Vibrations.
0: We're celebrating the 60s on Famous Lost Words. Tom, Bobby Hadfield and Bill Medley, a.k.a. the Righteous Brothers, had a string of hits in the 60s, including Unchained Melody and You've Lost That Lovin' Feelin'. Here, mm-hmm. Bobby explains how the duo got their name.
2: Well, that was uh, in a little club that Bill and I were working in. Uh, that we used to get quite a few marines come in and uh, it was a, cr- a crazy club. I mean, it was, it, you, had to, you had to know how to duck in this club and uh, we'd get quite a few black marines in. And, and as Bill might have mentioned there that we used to do a lot of, we started doing a lot more duets together. And uh, just this one particular night after we were doing a, a duet, I think it was a, an old song from a duet by the name of San, uh, Don and Dewey. Uh, one of the guys out in the audience yelled out, that's righteous, brother. And uh, it just kind of stuck because we were planning on leaving the group because it was really a show group and we weren't uh, show people. uh, And it stuck.
1: Oh, I can picture that moment. The guys bringing it home with their kind of passionate vocals and the audience being so moved. That's righteous, brother.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bill Medley tells the story of how Phil Spector chose them to record You've Lost That Love and Feeling and how that song ended up in their
2: laps. We did a couple of concerts up in uh, San Francisco with the Ronettes, and I, as I remember, he, he came up there and he he saw us and uh, liked us, and uh, and then I guess he just contacted uh, the record company that we were with. We were with Moonglow Record Company. One at, of the biggies. One of the real big ones, and, um, <laughs> uh, and then Phil leased our our contract from them I think for for two years and uh, actually he came came to us with the song you've lost that and feeling even before before we had signed with him uh, for some reason he thought that would be a, a great song for us and uh, before that time we had done all fast pretty much well at that time it was called quote hard rock <laughs> so I never did understand uh, Why he thought that was a a good record for us to do, but thank God he did. (laughs) 1965,
1: the classic You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Here's a cool song fact. After Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys heard You've Lost That Love and Feeling, he called up the writers Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann and said, Your song is the greatest record ever. I was ready to quit the business, but this has inspired me to write again. That's amazing. That's the power of a of a great song, even as it inspires other artists.
0: Wow. I love that quote. That's fantastic. Yeah. There was a time when You've Lost That Love and Feeling was the most played song on radio. It was literally yes. number one ahead of yesterday. I don't know if that's still true or not.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's still true or not. But when you consider their other really big hit, like they had a number of hits. But their other big hit, Unchained Melody, would probably be right up there with You've Lost That Love and Feelin' Now, among the songs that have been played the most ever in the history of radio.
0: Still more to come in our salute to the 60s, including the story of a great singer who was thrown out of his own band and continued to write and sing for them anyway.
1: That's right. And we'll tell the story of how he was eventually rewarded with a solo career that spanned decades. This is Famous Lost Words.
0: Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, where we dig up old interviews and play the best parts for you. This week, the music of the 60s.
1: Rolling Stone recently called it the greatest song ever. That's Aretha Franklin from 1967 and Respect. What a great performance.
0: Aretha got her start singing gospel with her father's Gospel Caravan when she was 12. She was signed shortly after to Columbia, but didn't break until Atlantic Records released I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You in 1967. Here's her reaction to the trappings of success.
5: Um, It's meant security, definitely, and more or less um, security in the sense that I'm doing for myself, and not being dependent upon my family, you know. I more or less—it's given me that, and um, just the enjoyment of recording and Mm. being on the stage, and the different things that happen, the good things, and the gold records, and new (laughs) clothes. Yeah, the trophies and what have you—all these, you know, beautiful things—and the sense of accomplishment.
1: The great Aretha Franklin talking about what success meant to her, and I really do wish we had more Aretha clips in the archives. Coming up in our next episode by the way, the guy who produced one of Aretha's earliest hits for Atlantic and why that recording session almost degenerated into a fistfight. It is a wild story.
0: <laughs> I know that story it is wild. Tom Ben E King is one of the great soul and R&B voices of the 60s. Originally as a member of the Drifters, followed by a successful solo career. In this 1987 interview, Roger Ashby, who knows this era so well, has a great chat with King and out of it we learn the unusual origins of that solo career.
6: Going back to the early days of the Drifters before before you were a uh, member of the New Drifters, we had Clyde Mcfadder doing lead vocals for the Drifters right. back in the in the mid mid to late 50s yeah. before he became a solo artist. Exactly. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of of the Drifters all the way through, a big Ooh. fan of Clyde Mcfadder and I remember those I don't remember those days because I was hey, I was just a little guy. <laughs> but I have since learned about them. And of course we all know on Broadway and under the boardwalk. But that period when you were with them mm. between 59 and 61 right. I guess it was is really yeah. considered to be the golden age because it was it was it seemed so fresh and so revolutionary at the time. There goes my baby was was that not the first R&B was the pop first, record or whatever it can but it have
5: strings it on it. Strings and kettle drums and all the bits and pieces, yeah. Um yeah, we did tend to uh Get more hit records, I think, than clients' drifters. Basically, because we came along at that time as well. Well, a lot of the uh, black records was being played on white stations. That helped, of course. A lot of the cover versions of black uh, records were stopped at that time as well. People were interested in seeing the artists that actually made the recordings. So that, of course, helped to uh, get those sales and um, get uh, even wider recognition as the drifters, you know.
6: Now your solo career, when you left to go solo, mm-hmm. everything worked out extremely well for you. Yeah. Now there are a lot of other people who are with groups and uh, and make a name for themselves, and they go out on their own and they fall flat on their face. Yeah. What, were, was there some risk involved? When like what, what happened? Why did you say to yourself in '61? Well, I've been with this group for two years now. I'm going to go out on my own. What happened there?
5: It was it wasn't a decision of my own. I didn't make that decision. I didn't uh, lead the group to pursue a solo career. or Anything. I um, I was more or less put out of the group. Not by the group members i'm you know 'm happy to say i um, we were on the road with a hit record, and of course, as I told you uh, a little earlier, we had become the new drifters uh, we were making a, we were on salary as the new drifters, I think we were making like seventy five dollars a week or something in that area money wise and we had decided that for what we were doing, the traveling we were doing. The cost of what it was taking for us to actually live a bit out there, we basically just wanted an increase of salary. Well, we figured we had we had a good thing going as far as strength because we said, okay, he's not going to fire the whole group. He just got a new group. We just got a hit record. We're on tour for him. He just won't run the risk of saying, okay, you know, forget it, you guys, If you're fired, and you know, I'll get another set. So we felt we had that to back us up with. So we came off the road one day and we decided we'd go home freshen up and we'd all meet downtown at George's office and have this great meeting. And we did. So we all met at his office and um, they elected me, the spokesman. I'll never know why. I guess they wanted me to get bumped. So (laughs) like a jerk, I stood up there and I made my big speech. And um, I looked at the other guys who were sitting down at that time, you know, and I'm waiting for some support here. And uh, they kind of looked at each other and looked at me standing there like a jerk and Hmm. leaving me to make a decision. The decision I made was to, um, I said, well, if they're going to sit and take it, then I'll just leave. As it was at that point, anyway, I was still in show business for fun, not really taking it all that serious. I left the group with the intention of actually just going back to work, supporting my family and getting on with life. Once I returned home, They wanted me to do a session for the Drifters again because even though I was out of the group, they wanted the sound. So they would call me back in. I did say I did say the last dance when I wasn't in the group. Oh, really? You'd left before that? Sure. That's why the the uh, history of my recording with the Drifters is so crazy. Because if you notice on the record, I think say the last dance was somewhere like 1960, 61, somewhere Mm -hmm. in that area. Fall of 1960. Yeah, there you are. So I left the group before that time and a few other things. But I. But I was recording Spanish Harlem for to be a drifter song as well, okay? But what had happened in that is that the guys didn't get to the studio. Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller already knew the situation, knew that I was out of the group. And they actually didn't think of me as having a solo career, but what they had done, they went to Jerry Wexler, Ahmed Erdogan, and said, look, Ben is, he deserves some kind of break. Why don't we leave Spanish Harlem as his solo record? So they had a big meeting, and they said, yeah, why not? And they gave me Spanish Harlem as a gift. And from that gift, my solo career just started. Isn't that funny how things happen like this? It's crazy.
3: There is a rose in Spanish Harlem.
1: 1960, Benny King, Spanish Harlem. That has to be one of the best interviews in our archives. That's Roger Ashby in conversation with Benny King. More from that interview in just a sec. What a great story of an artist trying to stand up for himself in the late 50s and early 60s and getting pushed back Nevertheless, it shows you the type of character he had to actually be willing to go back to the studio and record more songs for the Drifters. Wild.
0: You know what else is wild? The exploitation of artists and writers in this era. It's well documented, Mm -hmm. but it's still amazing to hear somebody like Benny King and how he was treated as a songwriter and also how fate saved his biggest hit from being lost to him forever.
6: Well, we all know the success story now of Stand By Me 25 years oh, later, of course, with the yeah. movie. and everything. Now,
5: again, with that, though, Stand By Me, I wrote for the Drifters to get back to another strange story about life and me and my career. I wrote that song really for the Drifters. Re- out of the group again, wrote the song for them, went to their apartment to rehearse it with them, rehearsed it with the guys. They loved it, right? We went downtown to George's office again. <laughs> nervous I was because I know I wasn't in the group and I know I wasn't his favorite person so I go there and I said look uh, I have a song that I wrote You because know, he, he, he respected me as a writer because a lot of the stuff that I wrote they bought from me as a matter of fact I wrote Dance With Me Oh, that I sold for $25, uh, and a few others, th- I wrote, uh, I think it was "Oh My Love, I wrote about five or six songs that I sold for $25, you know, because when they discovered that my writing was catching on, they'd start buying my material from me. When you say you sold
6: them, do you mean that you've, you've got nothing from them since? Did they become oh, no. somebody else's property? Oh, yeah, or? of
5: course. I sold it outright. In like other words, if you draw up a contract and you say, I'll give you $25 for this, whatever, whatever. Is so that, who,
6: whose name is on the label as having written it Oh,
5: George Treadwell and a few other lawyers. No kidding. <laughs> I'm serious. It's great. What a shame. What a shame. Hey, it's show business. Unfortunate, shame. it's show business. Anyhow, uh, the, the thing about the Stand By Me thing is that they turned it down. You know, I went there with him. It's, I, I'll never understand They this. turned it down. He turned it down. You would have sold that for $25? I would have sold that. Oh. I would have sold it because I, I, I didn't have nothing else to do with it, really. I basically wrote this song, and and I thought it was a good song. And uh, when, when I was approached to uh, get a chance to take it to the guys to rehearse it with them, I said, great. I said, got a song you guys would love, you know. And we were still friends. You know, the fellas uh, that was in, we were still buddies. You know? And um, went down, like I said, turned it down. Didn't even give me the offer to buy, which was great, yeah. So that's how I ended up. That was up. a stroke of luck, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 another, another lucky break.
6: Nobody ever could have predicted that, eh? To think no. that five or six yeah. years ago, if somebody yeah. said, Ben, Stand By Me is going to no. come back and be number one. In
5: wouldn't have, not in a million years. In I wouldn't, well, Stand By Me, with me connected to it, I only, only over the years thought that, okay, my only association with that record uh, would be from this point on, is, would be to person who, had, who wrote it and originally recorded it. Because all through those years, it's been re-recorded by this person yes, and yeah. that person and this person and that person. So I never thought it would come back to me again and be a song that belonged to me. I never re- re-recorded it or anything, so I just left it as it is.
7: In the-
1: a stunning clip which talks about the financial realities for many artists in the early days of rock and roll, even if you wrote
0: your own songs. You know, this reminds me of an interview I did with Otis Blackwell. I think we played part of that in an earlier episode, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. Now, he's the guy, he wrote a bunch of hits, like All Shook Up, Don't Be Cruel, Fever, and Great Balls of Fire. But similar to Benny King's story, he sold songs, big hit songs, for $25 all in. Jeez.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Still much more to come on this famous lost word celebration of the 60s. And we'll hear about the exact moment when folk rock was born.
0: This is the 1960s edition of Famous Lost Words, Mm, and I'm loving it. I'm Christopher Ward.
1: And I'm Tom Jones. Okay, I'm Tom (laughs) Jokin'. We have featured a number of 60s artists in previous episodes of Famous Lost Words, including Tom Jones, Uh and the Birds, and the Kinks, Roy Orbison, so... Look for those artists in the archives because we've already played them and we have so many other artists that we want to feature in this very special edition of the music of the 60s. So the best place to start is the iHeartRadio app or Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search for famous lost words. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review the show. It makes an absolutely huge difference.
7: Don't you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express taking me to Marrakesh
1: From 1969, Crosby, Stills, and Nash with Marrakesh Express.
0: Graham Nash parlayed a casual get together and a disaffection with his then current band, the Hollies, into something legendary. Here's his side of the Crosby, Stills, Nash origin story as told to us in 1970. I first
4: became involved with this crazy lot through David. About three years ago, he was staying at a hotel in London that was a complete drag, that I knew was a drag, but he didn't because he was a foreigner, you know. And uh, I'd met him before, Cass had introduced me to him, and he uh, he was okay. He was tolerable. And so when uh, when he called me from this hotel, I, uh, I insisted that he stay with me because it's really a drag. And so David stayed with me, and uh, I really got to love him a lot. When I came over here the last two times with the Hollies, uh, he introduced me to a friend called Stephen, uh, who completely flipped me out. Uh, but we never still sang together. We used to sing together, like, on, on different songs, but we never sang together, you know. Mm. That only happened the last time that I came to uh, America with the Hollies, which was approximately about nine months ago now, uh, February, when we played the whiskey, a go-go. Mm. And um, David came to see the show and took me over to Stephen's house. And uh, and we sang together, and it sounded nice. It sounded real fine. In fact, we uh, we couldn't quite believe it, what was going on. Uh, and then we had a meeting in uh, in another friend's house, where that was really just well everything that I've been trying to say for the last four years with the Hollies. Well, I guess they just wouldn't listen. You know, I had a I had a feeling that I wa- I was writing what I wanted to do, but I saw their point of view too. Except that I didn't want to accept it. So when they decided to do a Dylan album of Dylan songs and turn everyone into a top 10 watcher smash a uh, that was the last final straw and I said that I had to leave.
1: That's Graham Nash with one of the most legendary stories in music today about the time he first sang with David Crosby and Stephen Stills. And I still get chills thinking about that moment, even though I wasn't there and even though I've never heard it, but you can just imagine that moment when Nash hit those high harmonies with Crosby and Stills for the first time. By the way, cool song fact. Uh, The slide guitar on the CSN song Teach Your Children was played by Jerry Garcia.
0: I did not know that. (laughs) Let's jump ahead to 1969.
1: That's Creedence Clearwater Revival from 1969 and Fortunate Son. What a
0: great protest song. Love that song. CCR in their 60s heyday were one of the biggest bands of the times. And they did it with great songs, powerful vocals, and solid musicianship led by John Fogerty. Now, Fogerty has lots to say and he gets a surprising amount of philosophy into this one minute and 37 second clip. (laughs) He starts by replying to the question, how did CCR rise to the top in 1970?
8: Because the Beatles quit. (laughs) 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 I still can't stop having just incredible respect for them. Even when they're not doing anything, they're still doing something, you know. The fact that we exist at all like this as a group being known is almost a direct descendant of the Beatles, you know, one way or the other. I don't know, what makes us big, you know, we still would have sold the same amount of records. I guess we're noticed probably a little more. We're put into that one number one slot now because they, by default, otherwise we would have been number two and all that kind of thing, but probably not given the same kind of accolades we seem to be getting right now. Other than that, I don't know why. Each decision that was made starting from when I was eight it seems like a lot of them were right but you can't go back and say hey this is why i f- foresaw rock music being more than just nine-year-old kids or something the way a lot of people seem to say it is that always bugged me that in fact rock and roll became non-fashionable for a while as you know uh, it went into heavy deep thinking and all that stuff which has its place but it shouldn't be the whole works you know and everyone say rock is uh, banal and for morons and all that uh, which seemed to be what our parents were saying 10 years ago or so. Rock is just an exciting form of music. Right. Yeah. You know? Obviously, you try not to just have 12-bar blues over and over into infinity. We've tried to kind of broaden in our own way, but you don't sit down with a computer and say, ah, let's throw in a little country here and a little R&B there. You know, you, you do it. From what you've experienced, we're just beginning to starting to get them all in there now.
1: Oh, he covers a lot of ground in that clip. John Fogarty from CCR on Famous Lost to say all, be my, From 1963, the Ronettes and the classic Be My Baby.
0: She may be laughing, but it's a harrowing tale that Ronnie Spector tells about her relationship with Phil Spector, especially at a time when she should have been able to enjoy her career more.
9: Well, uh, I remember with the Beatles, (laughs) it was real great. The uh, Rolling Stones were our opening act (laughs) in Europe, and um, I was sort of dating Phil, you know, just sort of. Because at that time he was married and I didn't
4: even know he was
9: married. <laughs> he was married for like two months, yet he was liking me and, um, and I found out he was married so I would, they was dating John Lennon. <laughs> and Phil found out about it and came all the way to Europe <laughs> to get me off, like not to go on the Beatles tour. It was just, there's so many incidents in my life that has happened and there's so many things that didn't happen because it was so many years of seclusion.
0: You know, Tom, I met her at a release party when we were both on the same Canadian independent label, and she told me about being locked up in a mansion by Phil while he replaced her on tour.
1: Oh, man. Oh, that just sounds shocking. Wow. And Christopher, shortly after she passed, there were so many great tributes to her. And, of course, the story of Ronnie Spector cannot be told without telling the story of her time with Phil Spector and what a harrowing time that was. All right, Christopher, we're going to change things up a little bit as we continue with our 60s celebration. And I'm going to do an imitation of one of the biggest artists of that early 60s era. Are you ready?
0: Oh, no, I will never be ready.
1: (laughs) Here we go. Come on, everybody. Clap your hands. Are you looking good?
0: Uh, Pee Wee Herman?
1: <laughs>
0: Dudley Do Right? Oh, come
1: on, man. That was Chubby Checker.
0: <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, is there a fast forward sort of thing that people can hit if they need to? Because, you know. Yes,
1: they absolutely can, but they're already past that point.
0: <laughs> All right, okay. You know
1: what I think they should do is go back, listen to it again. And trust me, that was a spot-on imitation of Chubby Checker at the beginning of Let's Twist Again.
0: Uh, You know, Chubby had a moment. (laughs) You can see that I'm trying to veer off the topic here. Chubby had a moment, and he made the absolute best of it, I think. Was the success of the twist all thanks to Zha Gabor? (laughs) Let
10: Chubby tell the story, please. In 1960, the twist came along, and they didn't, they, everybody didn't accept it. People didn't come into the rock and roll then. They, did, they didn't do it yet. It took Zsa Zsa Gabor 18 months later at the Peppermint Lounge on 45th Street, who did the twist with someone. Earl Wilson was there. He saw it. He said, it all happened last night at the Peppermint Lounge. Zsa, Zsa Gabor did the twist. And Zsa Zsa Gabor, at that time, was probably the, the top actress in the world at that time, bar none, um, along with her great reputation and her lifestyle, and uh, she did the twist and everybody got a hold of it after that. The President of the United States, I mean, everybody got involved, and the twist was no longer, it had bridged the generation gap. was number one, then we put out the Pony, then we put out the Hucklebuck, then we put out the Mash, then we put out the, the Frug, and then Zsa did the, Then we put out Less Twist again, then Zsa Zsa did the Twist in the Peppermint Lounge, and it was the Twist again.
1: That's the Twist from 1960. Chubby indeed had a moment. Amazing audio from <laughs> Chubby Checker. And we actually have a lot of Chubby interviews in the archives. And let me just say that Chubby Checker has a rather strong opinion about his place in the grand scheme of rock and roll, and some people Mm -hmm. think he should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, Uh. I'm not one of them. Um, What do you think, Christopher?
0: No, you and I are on the same side of that question. He had a great run with The Twist and Let's Twist again, but um, it was a moment, not, not so much a career, I guess.
1: I mean, like, it's almost... You know, I don't mean to denigrate those songs because they were a lot of fun. Like the Limbo Rock, the Hucklebuck, they were all great fun. But honestly, it all feels like novelty to me. And Mm. so that doesn't quite live up to the standard of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Although very many people think that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, hasn't lived up to its own standards. So there you go. What do I know?
0: This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Up next, we continue our celebrations of the 60s when we hear from some of the biggest artists of the British Invasion. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, the 60s edition.
1: Oh man, what a beginning of a great song. I'm a man, Spencer Davis Group, 1967.
0: Spencer Davis was a great band leader, but he's also a top-notch storyteller as you'll hear in his tales about the beginnings of one of the band's greatest hits. And by the way,
9: Ravel is involved. Chris had brought a record back from the States by a guy called Homer Banks. It had a tremendous bass lick on it. You know, it was like It was just perfect. So Muff played the bass lick to me, you know, Muff Winwood. And Steve and I said about writing some music to it, and then Steve and a friend ended up with some words. Uh, we we just decided at the time that I, I'd, I'd been listening to things like Ravel's Bolero, and if you remember that, if you listen to the organ part on that, you'll see it's sort of similar. You know, the da, 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 that thing. Just fitted perfectly over that beat. It was just... Something that moved me when I heard it—it's just just the same as "I'm a Man" when we were asked to do uh, some music for a s- soundtrack for a film called "Swing in London." <laughs> Swing in London, I <laughs> love it. When you look back on it, uh, all the dolly birds and Carnaby Street—I can see it now. When we were touring in '67, uh, a guy came to the concert and he says, "I had to come to the concert." He said because I heard the Spencer Davis Group was on, and I said, "Oh, good. You know, you're here now. Wonderful." And he said, "Oh, he said I was in jail in some some part, some town in the states. He said all, all all I had was a transistor radio. He said I was in jail for about two years or something. I don't know what he'd done. And he said I used to, I have that radio on day and night, waiting for that song to come on. He said because I felt free when that song came on. You know, I mean, I can imagine what the guy must have felt because that that song, even when I hear it now, you know, it just does something to me."
1: Give Me Some Love and Spencer Davis group from 1966, what a wonderful story. And so much of the music of the 60s was euphoric and celebratory, and we can probably all think of songs from our past that we can put on now, and it'll always make us feel great. This is Famous Last Words. We're into something good with the 60s. Let's go to the fall of 64.
7: Something tells me I'm
4: into something good.
1: From 1964, what a song, I'm into something good, Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits.
0: Peter Noon started young, as he tells broadcaster Andy Kaye in this next clip. And his band, Herman's Hermits, became one of the hottest bands in the British invasion, racking up a long list of hits, starting with a classic Carole King song.
11: You started off at a very young age, what was it, around 15, 16?
7: Yeah, I think I, I had my first hit in England when I was 15. Wow! I'm into something
11: good. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite interesting. How did you get involved at the age of 15?
7: Um, I went to a school, Manchester School of Music, and I was friends with a lot of musicians. And when we were about 12, we decided to form a band and try and be Cliff Richards and the Shadows. Mm-hmm. And that was a failure, so over the next three years, we became Herman's Hermits instead.
11: Now, a name like Herman, where did where'd you pick up a name like that? <laughs>
7: We got it from the Bullwinkle show. There was a character in the Bullwinkle show called Sherman and Professor Peabody. Right. So we thought we'd call ourselves Sherman after him and be very cool.
11: <laughs> right. Well, as you mentioned, I'm Into Something Good was your first hit. That was the winner of uh, 1964. And boy, you were up, uh, up against some pretty heavy competition. Well,
7: it wasn't competition. They were all sort of uh, fellow uh, British invaders.
11: Oh, big ones, though. The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, well, Dave Clark Five, Manford Mann.
7: That was the time, yeah. Yeah. And
11: that must have been quite exciting.
7: It was, because we used to run into them all. You know, we used to do gigs together all the time. You know, like in England, we'd do Top of the Pops, and we did that big show at Wembley in 1965, which was the Beatles, the Stones, Herman's Hermits, the Kinks, Dave Clark, Five, Cliff Richards, and the Shadows. It was really a good time.
11: Do you remember your first appearance in North America? You must have been pretty excited.
7: Yeah, I was, actually. We didn't actually play. We played in a place in New Jersey. And when they announced us, the audience joined, on, joined us on stage and stole all our, all our equipment.
11: Are you serious?
7: Yeah, as souvenirs. <laughs> they said, ladies and gentlemen, Herman Termitzen, at that moment, we only had one person in security, and he ran away.
11: I, good idea.
7: <laughs> and the stage was then full of like 1,000 13-year-old girls who decided they wanted all our clothes and our guitars and our microphones and our equipment.
11: So welcome to the USA.
7: That was the USA, yeah. <laughs> Next year we toured Canada and they were just as crazy, so uh, that was good.
11: And uh, what can we expect to see you doing live on stage this Saturday?
7: Did well, I think I'm going to do uh, I'm Into Something Good, Wonderful World, Listen People, uh, Lean on a lamppost, uh, Can't You Hear My Heartbeat, Mrs. Brown, Henry VIII, There's a Kind of Hush, Silhouette, The End of the World, Jezebel, Lean on a Lamp Post, yeah, I think that's everything. About 20 songs I do.
11: Okay, I wanted to ask you your favorite Herman's Hermits hit.
7: Well, they're all my favourites because um, everybody still remembers them, but my my personal favourite is There's a the Kind of
11: Hush. Okay, let's listen to it right now.
7: Okay, Andy, you'll cool. call There's a kind of hush all over the world Tonight, all over the world People just like us are falling in love
1: Herman's Hermits from 1967, and There's a Kind of Hush. That's Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits, talking about the early days of that band. And running down the huge list of hit records that they had in the mid 60s. Really incredible.
0: It's impressive.
1: So, what do you think, Christopher? How was that so far? Part one of our tribute to the 60s. Did you
0: love it or not? Genius. I absolutely loved it. But I absolutely love the music of that era, too. Yeah. Tom, that does it for part one of our salute to the 60s. In part two, we'll feature the likes of Simon and Garfunkel and the Mamas and the Papas.
1: Yeah, Art Garfunkel is exceedingly precious in this interview, but it's (laughs) so very entertaining. And Denny Doherty tells one story about Mama Cass that is, quite frankly, bananas. And I don't (laughs) believe the story, but apparently Mm -hmm. he does. (laughs)
0: Yeah, he sounded pretty committed to the narrative, didn't he?
1: (laughs) He really did, yes.
0: We've also got James Brown, Stevie Wonder, Tommy James, The Zombies, The Who, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and many
1: more. Our show was co-written by myself and Christopher Ward. Christopher not only lived the 60s, he actually remembers it, which indicates (laughs) that he may not be telling the truth after
0: all. Hmm, you'll never (laughs) know. (laughs) Thanks to our executive producer, Sarah Cummings. A special shout-out to the radio stations across Canada that carry famous lost words, including News Talk 1010 Toronto, CJAD 800 Montreal, 580 CFRA Ottawa, AM 800 CKLW Windsor, News Talk 1290 London, 610 CKTB St. Catharines, CFAX Victoria, AM 1150 Kelowna and 91X in Belleville.
1: And thanks to you for listening. You'd be surprised at how much power you have in making sure we get to make more shows. If you're listening via podcast, tell all your friends, especially the music geeks in your life. And if you're listening on the radio, tell the folks at the radio station.
0: And you can weigh in on those Chubby Checker uh, impressions. Don't, don't, Don't hold back, okay?
1: Come on, everybody. Clap your hands.
0: Oh, it's getting better. Don't forget to get caught up on the more than 100 previous episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or any other major podcast platform.